We are here, but Simon's not. We're in the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate in London for episode 62 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. And today we bring you Definity Gets Back by A16Z, or Z for those listeners in the UK, F Futures, question mark, and Eminem shouts out Bitcoin. So Simon's in the US at the moment. However, this isn't going to be just me speaking for 40 minutes or so. I'm joined by three great guests. Olivia Vinden, head of FinTech UK at Alpha FMC. How are you, Olivia? Very well. I'm very excited to be here. Great. And Obi Nwosu, CEO of CoinFloor. How are you, Obi? I'm very good today. Thank you. And finally, Richard Burton, CEO of Balance. How are you, Richard? Very well. Excited to be on. Great. Okay, so moving on to our first story. This one is from Coindesk. So 102 million. So this one is about the Definity funding round of $102 million US, um, led by A16Z and Polychain. Decentralized cloud startup Definity has just raised that amount of money. I think that's its second raise to further its work in developing an internet computer. So planned to be publicly accessible, the network is scheduled to launch later this year. To that end, the company is already running a testnet for the platform. So, already build. Anyone got any comments on this one? Yeah, I had the pleasure of visiting the Definity office when I was in uh, California. And I've got to say, the atmosphere in that office is really incredible. Like, there's a real intensity to what they're doing. I think there's two sides to Definity that really excite me. Is First of all, it's an experiment in a fundamentally new consensus mechanism. This idea of a random beacon that gets uh, emitted from the network where you're not sure what the next random number will be, but you are sure that the network will eventually agree on which one that is and quite quickly. So it allows them to build up the cryptography on top of this random beacon. I think with a technique called threshold relay. And the idea here is, is it's a fundamentally different way to build consensus in a network. And this idea is kind of already uh, been adopted or experimented with by other open source projects. So it's clearly interesting. And just what really impresses me about the team is, is the kind of level of the talent. And also, I think it's a very interesting experiment in building a decentralized network from a central office where most of the team are in one place all working together. Um, and I think that yeah, I'm very excited to see it launch. Um, so, yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah, they have got a great team, haven't they? I think um, when you look at Andreessen Horowitz as a VC, betting against them is probably a bad idea anyway. They just have so many good investments over the years. And on their A16Z podcast, they've been sort of trialing, I think, stuff around Web 3.0 and, and Cloud 3.0 for quite a long time. So it's really, I don't know if they've made other investments of this type, but it's really exciting to see that coming to the fore and like, what the future of blockchain might be as an infrastructure as opposed to yeah. some of the earlier things. I think they invested in Oasis as well, which is like a trusted hardware network, uh, again, which could be another opportunity for scalability. Yeah. I mean, there are a number of blockchain platforms purporting to be the computer, the decentralized computer. First and foremost is obviously Ethereum. But from my point of view, I've seen a lot of these and they always have incredibly impressive teams, but I still want to take a wait and see attitude. One thing I thought was really interesting on their website, and I don't know... Um like I'm not a computer scientist, so they they talk about um, the the protocol being totally randomised, and I I thought that was just a, an oxymoron, kind of in computer terms. That all computing is deterministic, so I don't I don't know if either of you are developers, but yeah, I'm, I'm certainly not a developer. But as far as I understand it, the the tricky part is to generate a random number from a network that's uncorruptible, um, kind of unpredictable, um, but also consistent. Um, and 
also to do that in a resilient manner. So as I understand it, you just need 400 nodes in the network to kind of reach an agreement and thus produces the next random number. Uh, and then they build up a lot of the systems and cryptography of that. Mm-hmm. And this is my very high level understanding. I can't speak to it in any real detail, but I think it's a novel and interesting enough consensus mechanism that it's being debated quite thoroughly on the E3 search forums. Uh, and that suggests that it does have some merit. And then also some of the team they've assembled to, to highlight them. Uh, you know, there's Ben Lin, who is the L in BLS cryptography of which this is kind of built. There's the creator of, of, of Wasm um, from Google and then a chap who, who sped up Bitcoin mining. Um, so I just think I have no kind of holding in Definity or any position. I, I'm just very excited uh, for what we do to see these other networks launch. Milia is just is showing other networks and other experiments to see what happens and should provide like new opportunities for DAP developers and, and people building on top of these protocols. And from my point of view, I, I am a computer scientist by background and the approach they're taking is very interesting, but there are a few alarm bells from my point of view. One is that they are rolling their own crypto, which is generally as a cryptographer, rule number one, never roll your own crypto. So that is going to be a challenge for a lot of the people in the space to see how it progresses and accept it. That being said, they have an incredibly strong team and that goes a long way. So I'm very hopeful, but I will want to wait to see. Watch this space. Okay, moving on. So the next story we're going to discuss today, also from Coindesk.com, messaging giant Line is launching its own cryptocurrency. Okay, so Line has become one of the first publicly traded companies to have launched a proprietary blockchain mainnet with its own cryptocurrency. Uh, the firm said that the genesis block of its link chain, L-I-N-K, was produced on August the 23rd. Line now aims to gradually issue a total of 1 billion of the network's link tokens, of which 800 million will be distributed to public users, and the rest will be held as a company reserve. Uh, so they didn't adopt the initial coin model, they went for an airdrop approach. Um, what do we think of that? So um, I think this is actually... When we look back in a year or two, announcements like this are going to be seen as a threshold moment. And the reason why is because I, as a philosophy, I believe that um, Line is famous for its messenger platform. And messenger platforms are the new form of the internet. It was web browsers, and now most people interact in one messenger platform or another, and they get their news from other people giving them links through these platforms. Yeah. Um, the combination of cryptocurrency with messenger platforms works perfectly. Um, Telegram, uh, there's been silence now, but I think they've closed and um, the amount they're going to be closing out is going to be an eye-watering number. Um, And I think Line knows this and they're about to launch another cryptocurrency based on top of an IAM platform. And that I think we will see as being the first example of a true killer app. Well, it's quite nice, uh, quite a nice story, actually, because the the Line messaging network came about after 2011 when there was a big earthquake in Japan. So they wanted to find a way to create a completely infallible, decentralized, um, fault tolerant network uh, that was resistant to these kind of natural disasters. So it's, yeah. Did it give any details about how you convert the line crypto to a fiat or is it they've just been given tokens for free and so they become their own the approach they're taking, which I think is a really interesting approach is, as I said, it's an airdrop. So people are awarded this for actions. So it's actually conceptually similar to mining. So mining is the process of performing some business significant task and being rewarded in a cryptocurrency for that task. The first one was in, in response for 
as a result of processing transactions, payment transactions, you get rewarded in Bitcoin. Ethereum for performing or processing smart contracts, again, you get rewarded. So their plan is to, um, for users of these decentralized apps that they would be launching on the Line network, um, they will reward them in, in this currency. But will it be just in the ecosystem you can use it or will people start to convert it into yen and then spend it in a shop? I- well, I, that could be, that would be where it'd go. But I think if you have the ability to use it within the ecosystem, you still can get a circular economy. If people can earn it through their actions and then spend it on other um, apps, you have the circular economy starting there. And once you have a fully circular economy, that's when we get into the next phase of cryptocurrencies. I take a strongly opposite view where I feel like these are the AOLs of our time where they're kind of trying to own blockchain as a thing um, and create these little ecosystems. And AOL's ecosystem did very well for a few years as they kind of became the onboarding platform for millions of people. But in the end, what draws people away from these closed ecosystems is the kind of open source and permissionless uh, systems, not because people care about open source or they care about things being permissionless, but that developers do. So that's where the best engineers spend their time time. Uh, you know, as someone who's worked a lot on closed source platforms like uh, uh, for banking and for Apple, and when you're submitting and begging an app store for approval, and then you switch back to the web and Ethereum, you just want to spend more of your time there. And so I'm I'm excited to see this as a gateway drug for people in the crypto in the same way AOL was a great gateway drug to the internet. But AOL is not a dominant force today. And I don't believe Line or, or Facebook or even Telegram is going to be a dominant force tomorrow. Interesting. I, I, luckily, I furiously agree with you, um, <laughs> as Simon would say. <laughs> um, but in, I'm sort of channeling Simon now. But <laughs> I, so I furiously agree with you because, um, but being around the time of AOL and at the time when I graduated from university, showing my age, I was working for a competitor to called Delphi Internet, which was around us, like CompuServe, Delphi Internet, and AOL they were key to getting to the stage where we are now. So this is why this is a key step. This is a key step where we'll see a centralized organization um, bring cryptocurrencies and, and show an actual real use case, a killer app use case, and bring it to the limelight and mass adoption. At that point, we know with these decentralized computers, for example, Definity, Ethereum, and so on, there is no technical reason why you can't make a decentralized line. But that is stage two. Stage one is to show an application that makes sense. Yeah, no, it's a stepping stone, I think. Yeah, very good stepping stone. Okay, so I'll move us on. So the third article we're going to talk about today is also from Coindesk. And we have crypto exchange Huobi acquiring public firm for 70 million. I think that's US dollars. I, I, I do want to comment on this one. I mean, Huobi, I, I love the guys from Huobi. Um, and like with many of exchanges, we have conversations regularly. However, unlike us, they've, they have a platform where you can join with very little KYC and AML requirements, etc. So it is going to be challenging for them to be adopted as a public firm in a reputable listed exchange. This is one approach to achieving that. Um, I'm not sure whether they'll be able to go the whole way and fully reverse list into being listed on a public chain. Mm, okay, so they, they acquired the public form Petronics Holdings. I think they, they now own around um, two-thirds of the shares? Just under 70%, I believe, yeah. yeah. 70 million. Okay, all right. Well, okay, watch this space for Huobi. 
So the next story is from businessinsider.com. CBOE is telling market makers that it's getting close to launching Ether futures and could mark a big step in crypto's evolution. So CBOE, the exchange group behind the first market for Bitcoin futures, is announcing that it's going to do the same for Ether. So the quote from the article is the CBOE's offering will enable crypto traders to take both long and short positions in Ether. And it's another step towards a new accepted asset class, says Danny Kim, head of growth at SFOX, a crypto trading technology firm. Any comments on this? Ether futures, huh? It's kind of amazing because I remember getting together with a bunch of the early Ethereum folks in a pub not so far from here and discussing about uh, how you could get involved with the existing financial system and how this could eventually be accepted. And to reach this day where uh, Wall Street is kind of fully embracing and trying to price in a system that was ostensibly designed to to be a challenge to Wall Street is is pretty exciting because what I, I see this as is, is a step towards um, a fully open source financial system. And that's the subtle shift that kind of began with Bitcoin is that Money became programmable, but its source also became open. Uh, and, and to see Wall Street kind of shifting to Ethereum's terms rather than Ethereum having to shift to anyone else's terms, um, is an, a really exciting moment, I think, because, you know, for, for all of its faults and all of the things that are, are imperfect about it and all of the scaling issues and all of the other challenges that it faces as a protocol, it has provided a slow, kind of expensive, trustworthy computer. And that has proven of some value to humanity. And, and that value now is, is being accepted by the traditional financial institutions. Um, so yeah, it's a big shift and it's exciting. Mm. Yeah. You know that we have come a long way. When we started, we weren't known and um, we focused on preemptive compliance. But our com- even though we were in the city of London, most of the financial institutions either didn't know about the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency or didn't care less. Earlier this year, I and a number of CEOs or founders of various exchanges were at the New York Stock Exchange and we had to like hammer down on the, use a hammer down with the gavel on, on the gavel. And that was, uh, for us, uh, a real um, seminal moment. And this was because we were working on this combined data feed to be, potentially be used for a future, a futures offering. And it was combining the prices of multiple exchanges from around the world. So, that, so we have come a long way. That being said, just from a technical point of view, the CBOE's future is a cash-settled future. And um, that, as we were talking about before, is a stepping stone to the correct and best-in-class product that we can provide, a, a physically delivered future. And currently, um, as such, it's not the ideal offering first outing for Ethereum, just like the CBOE's Bitcoin futures offering was not the first ideal first outing. Hopefully, it can bring recognition to the currency and get more institutional interest and over time and I'm still looking, ho- I'm hopeful for that, but I, I would look out for a physically delivered Ethereum future. Obi, do you have any sense of the breakdown of, of who's who's interacting with these futures? Because I, I guess I traditionally work with asset managers, wealth managers, and my sense is that their risk appetite is still not there for futures. So I, I, I suspect that it's still with hedge funds, investment banks, but it hasn't made its way into the yeah. slower side of the industry yet. Is, is so that your experience? Full disclosure, we obviously have our own futures offering. And so we do have a, a good sense of who the customers are. And as I think your analysis is right. You have financial institutions 
on this spectrum from the risk averse to the risk tolerant. And what we're seeing over time is that more and more risk averse people are starting to get get in. But the people you expect who are more risk tolerant are in now. So they are um, proprietary trading firms, certain hedge funds, people who are family offices, people who are either trading their own book, their own capital, or they only have to talk to one or two people to be able to trade. But when you have to talk to financial institutions who have thousands or millions of customers, they're going to be the most risk averse and they're going to have the highest level of regulations behind them. And and therefore, they're going to be the last to enter and they need to see very low risk products to trade in, very well capitalized companies, lots of track record and ideally some sort of regulatory umbrella so that they know there's someone checking them. Yeah, absolutely. I noticed as well that CBOE said that they are going to offer long and short and that would be interesting as well where the financial institutions are actually saying we think the price is going down. Yeah, Yeah. they're able to speculate on the downside finally. That was the fear when the CBOE launched uh, Bitcoin Futures um, last year now. Last year, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, the price spiked, didn't it, towards the end of last year? Yeah. And then obviously, but the fear yes. was it was going to drop yes, as well. Yes, after it spiked. <laughs> yes. <Which laughs> anyway, did. not saying anything. Just to remind everybody, today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by the lovely, lovely folks at R3. And Todd McDonald's was on the show a couple of weeks ago in his shiny red T-shirt. And uh, they said that the R3 Calder platform delivers on the promise of blockchain for business. If you're in London this September, you should plan to visit over 400 attendees at their conference Cordicon on the 12th and 13th of September. So they're doing a dev day and a biz day. Um, so dev day is the 12th of September and uh, the biz day is on the September the 13th. The speaker lineup's got um, European Central Bank, HPE, HSBC, Finastra, Guild One, uh, Microsoft, apparently, Nataxis, Trade, uh, Trade IX, um, which are, Trade IX are another one of those um, consortia doing uh, uh, trade finance stuff. Trade finance seems really hot right now. And of course, um, Blockchain Insider will be there, so come say hi to us. Uh, you can visit r3.com forward slash Cordicon to register if you want to see Todd in a red t-shirt, um, if you want to see Colin G. Platt away from his field, um, just any of that good stuff. Um, make sure you get yourself down there. We're also taking this show live on the 26th of September to the London Olympia for Blockchain Live. Woohoo! Head on over to blockchainlive.com and check out the latest event announcements where Simon will be speaking and he has a discount code for you for 30% off your ticket price. The discount code is M for mother 11FS18. Remember to hit subscribe and don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps us out. Okay, moving on to our next story. So this one's from Finextra.com. Deutsche Börse sets up a dedicated blockchain and crypto assets unit. So Deutsche Börse has been actively exploring potential applications of distributed ledgers and blockchain and the implications of these crypto assets, including cooperation with international central securities depositories on the use of distributed ledgers and smart contracts for mobilizing scarce collateral, as well as joint development of a functional prototype for the blockchain technology-based settlement of securities with Deutsche Bundesbank. So late last month, the exchange also acquired a minority stake in HQLAX, the liquidity and collateral management outfit, with which it's building a blockchain-based front-to-back operating model for securities lending. Olivia, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, so uh, definitely, definitely interesting. I think it's it's one of those things that could be a big story or it could be a no story, just innovation theatre, as, as you guys would say. Um, I think 
right now, if you look across the exchanges, like, you know, taking um, LSE in the UK or ASX in Australia, NASDAQ, we've already talked about, they've all got blockchain projects ongoing across crypto and to more sort of distributed ledger style stuff for financial services. And I think not having an answer to those things, if your Deutsche Börse begins to look like kind of negligence, so you have to have a story. So I think we have to wait to see the details. But yeah, yeah absolutely. So the next story comes from Coindesk.com. Google now provides a big data view of the Ethereum blockchain. So Google has added Ethereum to its big data analytics platform, BigQuery. Richard, I know you have lots to say about this, so please take us away. Yeah, I think this is really exciting. Um, One thing that doesn't become apparent until you start building against the Ethereum blockchain is that while the data of um, the blockchain itself might be kind of measured in tens of gigabytes, um, that the kind of metadata surrounding it, such as token balances, contracts, addresses, uh, different interactions, signing messages, and all kinds of things can be terabytes and terabytes of data. Um, and then also you need information that kind of surrounds the Ethereum protocol to actually make any really intelligent user interfaces and kind of distributed applications. So a lot of this data right now resides in a project called Etherscan, which is one of these amazing tools that it kind of ingests the Ethereum blockchain, as well as lots of information from developers about what their contract is, what their token names are, their tokens logo, um, how these different things interact, and then kind of provides APIs for developers that they use. But the, the tricky part is, is this ends up being a kind of point of centralization for, for Ethereum, where it's all being rooted through one company. Um, it's great to see uh, Google recognizing this as a kind of big data problem and applying their kind of amazing infrastructure and, and kind of teams to this as, a, as another place to serve data. But, but ultimately, just because we now have Etherscan and potentially Google offering this data, these are still kind of central points of failure where if the APIs shut down, um, many dApps kind of could fail and, and, and maybe the point of decentralization is a little bit lost. So we looked into this a lot and, and one of the teams that, that we've partnered with at Balance and we kind of have experience working with um, is, is Graph Protocol. And they're trying to actually take this idea of providing kind of censorship resistant access to the data in these different protocols by building an incentive mechanism where people can earn tokens for processing the Ethereum blockchain and providing that data um, to developers. But yeah, it, basically there's this kind of big story that's going to emerge for developers is like all of the stack around actually building on top of Ethereum and other kind of protocols that purport to have computation at their core. But yeah, I think this is a hugely exciting that you know Google has made their money off indexing the web, which is an incredibly hard thing to do. And also, I think that indexing all of these protocols will get increasingly difficult. And there's lots of opportunity there. So it's exciting stuff. Yeah, it really is. Really is. Single point of trust and single point of failure are incredibly important. And this infrastructure, it's quite interesting how you see the convergence of these technologies as well with big data, which is a buzzword and blockchain, which is a buzzword. And I think you can um, you can obviously do SQL queries on big data, but you can also, there's something about machine learning as well. So that's a really nice uh, trifecta tri- buzzword bingo. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is Ethereum the first crypto that's been added to BigQuery or is it, have they... I think they added Bitcoin as well, but I don't know for sure. Okay, interesting. Just as an aside, because I'm a mega geek reader, um, the former chief data scientist at Google, who I think is called Seth Stephen DeWidowitz, has just written a book about what Google searches say about the world, and it's so good. So I really recommend it. To oh, excellent. Yeah, recommendation of the week for books. Okay, so moving us on now, this next story we're going to cover is from Coindesk again. 
go Coindesk. Coinbase survey shows 18% of US students now own cryptocurrency. So according to the survey commissioned by Coinbase, 21 of the top 50 US universities, as ranked by the US News & World Report, now offer a class on blockchain technology or cryptocurrency, and at least 11 colleges offer more than one. Yeah, I mean, I, when I read this, I was like, it's kind of annoyed that students have money to invest first off. And then I thought, I wonder whether some of them are actually in negative equity after the prices have, have kind of fallen across the board over the last year. So yeah, in, interesting one, but yeah. I, I worry for the poor students. Well, that would be a shame, wouldn't it, given how um, expensive the university is in the US as well. It's probably from bank of mum and dad, isn't it? So, but I, I've only got one comment to say on this, which is, I'm just surprised the number's so low. I would have expected it to be much higher. 18%. Mm. Mm. I'm not surprised that so many universities are now offering courses because I think anyone that's on LinkedIn that's had anything to do with blockchain, even in a dream, gets targeted with so many adverts for blockchain university courses. And I, I imagine that many of them are not that great quality. I mean, I'm excited because I like the idea that students will, first of all, kind of buy in because of the prices and then hopefully stick around because of the principles and learn more about how all of this movement got started. I think, you know, many people in the industry describe it as going down the rabbit hole and, and most people get sucked in by their friends making some money or, or getting excited by the prices. And then if you actually start to read and understand um, why Bitcoin was created, why Ethereum was created, why all these other protocols are now being created, hopefully it's the, the gateway drug to kind of get them more excited about this. However, if most of them are now underwater and have lost a lot of money, they're likely to feel pretty burned. But but in the long term, I think most of them, if they, they hold on, they'll be, they'll be fine. But yeah, it's exciting to see. Yeah, hold on. Hold on, guys. Um, well, this is a very small sample size as well of the, the survey that they did. I think it was uh, 675 students. So um, I'm not sure if that's enough to really mark a trend. And perhaps if you did a global survey, maybe it would be eight, higher than 18%. Maybe not. I'm not sure. I think um, just talking about students, that just often there is sort of bad financial literacy across the board. So it's it's good that if people are getting interested in investing, but given that these are just sort of stocks which don't have any um, dividends or anything associated with them, probably they would be better. Well, diversify always is the rule, but also they'd be better to have some some investments in just the traditional stock market and generate money from the compound interest yeah. over time. I, I, we've got a very relatively young team, myself not included in CoinFloor. And um, I have the view that people have come to crypto first, understand it. It really resonates with people who are students or just graduated. And then if they can afford it, they will invest. But the ideals of crypto, I, I think we don't have anything to fear. It's incredibly aligned to to if you cast your mind back to when you were you know, a rebellious student and um, so I, it's going to be really interesting as they go into industry and start becoming captains of industry, as many of the people in my team are fast becoming. <laughs> it is very interesting, isn't it? Because I sort of wonder what they study as well. What are they students of? Is it economics, finance, computer science, for example? Um, and we often see, we're kind of seeing, uh, we've got a convergence phase, I think, is, is uh what I see at the moment, where you have these multidisciplinary teams, very much like ours at Climatics, where you have experts in business and finance and engineering. And there's this kind of cross-pollination of knowledge of the two industries coming together. And I think that's a sign of maturity, really. But it's, yeah, students hodling. There we go. What's new, hey? Hoddle gang. <laughs> okay, moving us on now. This one is from the ICOjournal.com. 
So Nasdaq, a source at Nasdaq has claimed that there will be the listing of several coins in 2019. So while there have been other headlines connected to global exchanges dipping their toes into the crypto waters via partnerships and futures trading, the Nasdaq may just go all in. So the the source has said in the ICO journal, the conversation around listing coins is centred on how they would be classified from a regulatory standpoint. So as you can imagine, our leadership is closely connected to the rumbling at the SEC and CFTC around cryptos. Other nations and regulators are available, of course. And what is expected, that was me, (laughs) and what is expected over the next three to six months, which is quite a short time frame, I think. So does anyone have any views on this, listing ICOs in a, a traditional exchange? I mean, it's it's not a surprise. There are so many exchanges who are listing, planning to list, and they're going to be receiving a lot of pressure to, to list. So yeah, I'd expect them to do it. And those tight timelines are because of the downwards, sidewards and upwards pressure they're receiving to do this. Mm, yeah, I'd be really interested to look at the details of, of how that's going to work. Like if there are existing coins out there, but they're just now going to be listed on NASDAQ. And so NASDAQ has to do something in order to make the transactions on the actual blockchain. Um, so I, I think the devil's in the detail there about, about how it works and what you're really getting if you buy it on NASDAQ as opposed to buying it on the, the blockchain itself. Yeah, absolutely. And there's the, the point about the regulatory guidance is, is very pertinent, I think. It's there's I felt like that argument's been won. Like they've basically said the security's right. I, I mean, I don't know. Do you, do you guys disagree? I, I, I thought pretty much the direction of travel was everyone's pretty much said ICOs are securities. Looks like a security, acts like a security. I think there's still some. I think there's still some debate. There is this concept of a consumer or utility token versus security, but the grounding for the for tokens that are clearly securities is clearer because you can then use pre-existing regulation and regulation for utilities is still being formulated so yeah i mean it's a very difficult one isn't it because a lot of these icos happened and uh, to raise money to build the project as opposed to having a kind of mvp or a product and then going to a vc and launching money as you would traditionally so it remains to be seen whether these purported utility tokens do have any utility exactly i think it's exciting to see that the pressure has shifted from, you know, if five years ago the NASDAQ had considered listing it, it would be seen as kind of revolutionary and they would probably receive pressure from their investors saying you shouldn't do this and this is dodgy. Um, but now if you kind of look at the incredible profits that many of the exchanges are making around the world and Binance's kind of meteoric rise, um, now every CEO feels the pressure to list. So the, again, you're seeing this kind of subtle shift where uh, the cat's out of the bag and now you've kind of got to go with it. And so again, you're playing on terms um, that kind of seem unthinkable five years ago that the, the traditional financial institutions uh, have to embrace the open source financial system, um, whether they like it or not. Mm, excellent. Okay, so now stories we didn't have time to cover, unfortunately. So this first one is from Coindesk.com and it's Eminem's latest album, Kamikaze, features a Bitcoin shout out. So there we go. The next one's from Coindesk.com, where former Ripple CTO's blockchain project Coil enters closed beta. And Coindesk.com again, Microsoft is slowly but surely connecting blockchain to main products. Okay, and now we move on to everyone's favourite segment, Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. And this one comes from Dan Held, who very, very cleverly has changed his name on Twitter to Dan Heddle. Um, and his tweet reads, Hodlers are the revolutionaries, a reflection on the important role hodlers play in developing Bitcoin network, 
Bitcoin's network and other cryptocurrency networks too. For a deeper dive, please read his Medium post, medium.com forward slash at Dan Heddle. So what do we think about that? Are hodlers revolutionary? Well, I had the pleasure of meeting Dan after he sold his company to blockchain um, for Bitcoin. I think it was one of the first acquisitions for Bitcoin. So it's great that he has been hodling since then. For people who don't know, this meme hodl came from a Bitcoin forum post where somebody got on there whilst the price was crashing and kind of drunkenly explained that it didn't matter what happened to the price, but he was going to hodl and acknowledged during the post that he had misspelt the term. And if you go to this post, it's now just kind of internet folklore, where kind of two posts in, it had already been plastered over a kind of image from 300, the movie, or Braveheart, and that no matter what, the Bitcoin community would huddle, no matter how far down the price went. And the reason I think this is interesting is that basically all currencies are memes. Um, they're ideas that are kind of put out largely by governments today and now by kind of ragtag bands of people on the internet. And the HODL meme was the most powerful meme that binded together the Bitcoin community um, when price volatility was incredibly extreme, particularly when the, the Mt. Gox hack went down. And this is so important because it doesn't fit kind of many of the models that Wall Street might want to apply to rational markets um, when there are people who are just religiously hodling um, no matter what happens. Uh, then you, you kind of that is what increases the network security because there are just fewer and fewer Bitcoins that are willing to be traded. But yeah, I'm sure others here can speak more to how that looks. So um, I don't think hodlers are revolutionary. And this is coming from someone who's very much a maximalist of certain currencies i won't name which ones uh, <laughs> for obvious reasons but um i don't think they're revolutionary but i do think this meme this concept has turned something which has always existed i.e people who save for a rainy day and i don't easily um get swayed by by fashion or financial fashion um, into very cool people. Because historically, in the past, you know, my parents, I mean, I'm from a Nigerian background, so we naturally have to, you need to um, use a blowtorch to open our pockets and so on. We're very careful with our money. And um, we are naturally hodlers. But it wasn't considered a cool thing. It's, it's the people who would bet it all on black and speculate and so on were the cool kids. And with one meme, with one post, um, we've single-handedly become some of the coolest people around, the people who don't spend, the people who have the, the steel and nerve to continue through and, and hold on when everybody else thinks you're crazy, um, Rejard Kipling-like. That's what I think has brought this, brought so much power to this concept. And it provides this safety net. Um, this belief provides a safety net to a cryptocurrency, which ultimately gives it a strength in front of anything, nation states, the, um, the media, whoever it may be. And, um, I think, um, many other parts of the financial space can learn from this. Um, so yeah. But they're not revolutionary, but they are a very, very key part of the system. I'm proud to be a hodler. I don't know that that's the right analogy, because for me, they're, they're not savers. They're people that have bet it all on black, but the circle's still turning, like the roulette wheel's still going. So I think we still, I mean, they may be absolute geniuses and fantastic, but they may lose a lot of money. So I don't think we know. Like, 
Well, I think that it's not just the meme there. It's that the predictable deflationary pattern of Bitcoin is really what's novel. And that's what kind of bind hodlers together. And their view is that a fixed amount of a digital thing to, to have just 21 million and to have developed such strong consensus around that as a community. I mean, even just changing the block size last year was a kind of biblical war. So if anybody attempted to kind of change the money supply of Bitcoin, uh, they would be instantly kind of cast aside from, from the community. Um, so many of them talk about kind of carving out space on the Bitcoin blockchain. They think of their net worth in 21s because they know they have one millionth more of the Bitcoin blockchain and they wish to kind of have as many millionths as possible. Um, and again, these people are just, if you were to ask them what they would rather give up before their Bitcoin, it would probably only be their family that would rank above Bitcoin, kind of friends, religion, their country, their kind of sports, almost anything else they would happily just do away with. But if they got to hodl onto their Bitcoin, that would keep them together. So it's it's an incredibly powerful meme. And, and I think has also been an inspiration to the Ethereum community where, where so many teams raised such a ridiculous amount of money and shipped basically nothing that the real meme of Ethereum has become to kind of biddle, which is a misspelling of build. And this is the idea that, yes, you may have made a lot of money, but really, what have you actually shipped? What have you made? What have you created? And so you notice this at the conferences where the discussions are happening among the biddlers, the people who are actually shipping things, not the people who shield some kind of token to the masses and escape with millions. So these memes do bind the communities, and I, I find them very fascinating. Mm, it's a badge of honour, isn't it? Yeah. Um, anyway, what is money if not a shared delusion? <laughs> okay, so where can people find out more about you, Olivia? Uh, just on LinkedIn or at alphafmc.com. Excellent. Richard? Yeah, you could check out our work at balance.io or if you'd like to send me a direct message on Twitter, uh, my handle is R-I-C-B-U-R-T-O-N. So I'd love to chat to you there. Great, thank you. And finally, Obi. So you can get me on Twitter. My handle is Obi, O-B-I. And also you can contact me, of course, on coinfloor.com. That's a great Twitter handle. Well done. I was... I'm, you, I show my age. <laughs> <laughs> and me, with as ever, I'm at Seronimo on Twitter, or you can go to clearmatics.com forward slash careers or tweet at us at Clearmatics. Before we go, Colin caught up with William Maguire from JM3 Capital. So I'm here with William Mogiar, the MD at JM3 Capital, author of the Business Blockchain and producer of Token Summit. Thank you very much for coming on today. Hello. So we're still at the, the BAI Conf. Watched your talk this morning, really interesting things, learned and we had a conversation just before the show about some of these cool new tools. Um, but you have been in this industry probably longer than most uh, as an investor, as an advisor, as an author of one of, kind of the, the foremost books on the subject. Can you tell us a bit more about what you do? Uh, and I also want to kind of get into how you see the industry, how it's evolved. Sure. So right now I'm focused mostly on the investment side of the industry because of my current uh, big project, which is a new division of uh, Jarper Capital Partners in Geneva. And I'll be running this division and we'll be very interested in looking at opportunities now in the blockchain space from an investment perspective across the board from uh, VC style investments to tokens and cryptocurrency. 
So I am uh, very focused on uh, on that aspect. I'm, I've been an, an advisor and an investor in other uh, blockchain companies uh, since 2014. But the focus that I'm looking at right now is I'm a little bit obsessed with uh, trying to find out the metrics uh, behind blockchain usage. And uh, as you know, many industry participants uh, tend to look at coin market cap as a barometer or as a, a place to go and see how the market is doing. And obviously that is one way of looking at that. Uh, and some others look at how much money is going into the system and they say, well, we've raised $27 billion worth of ICO money in the last three years and uh, every month there is more than a billion dollars that goes in. And uh, now we have 1,600 uh, uh, currencies and uh, so many thousands of startups. but. This is all activity. What I'm more and more focused on these days is, is real traction numbers and uh, trying to look at the outcome of this activity in terms of, for example, looking at active users, uh, number of transactions, the value of these transactions, uh, the balances in these smart contracts, the uh, transactions between smart contracts, not just from one currency to another. and. Um, uh, trying to see really uh, wh where this activity is uh, in, in the way that the blockchain had intended the activity to, to, to go. So every project is going to have to stand on its own merit. Uh, and uh, we have to be more cognizant of uh, what each uh, coin is doing in the marketplace. And that's not just look at it as an investment vehicle. And, and that's the challenge right now. Uh, if you look at market cap, you will see the prices are moving up and down altogether. Mm -hmm. What this means is that there's not a lot, of, a lot of smart money in it. It means that the investors are not discriminating and not making a difference between a good coin and a bad coin. Uh, that shouldn't be the way. Uh, the coins that have traction should move, uh, should be valued according to the traction. And, and those that do not have traction, those that have not been able to deliver, uh, then there should be a cloud around them. And over time, uh, they will be less valuable. Can I, can I drill in on that, though, real quickly? Because if we look at um, traditional stock markets, we see that there's a lot of correlation between stocks. If, um, you know, let's say Apple does really well, it may be that Google also goes up, even if they didn't necessarily produce any numbers recently. Um, and people say, well, if Apple's doing well, it follows on that uh, there's a lot of other metrics that are proven or quote-unquote proven in, in investment that say that Google should also be doing better than necessarily we thought yesterday. Do you not see that same thing happening and being valid? Let, let's say um, XYZ app uh, does particularly well, that token value should go up, and maybe it's a decentralized exchange, that should mean that other decentralized exchanges are necessarily doing better. Or is that a wrong way of thinking? It depends. I mean, it would be a slippery slope to think about these kinds of correlations before the actual application or before the actual technology is mature enough and has enough users. The examples you gave are valid, but these are companies that are mature, that already are in the marketplace, and you can point to them and then say, well, here, look, here's the metric, here's what they're doing, uh, here's the revenue, here's the growth. Here we are talking about a lot of theory uh, that uh, is, is being speculated upon. Uh, recently I've been 
uh, starting to hear uh, projects uh, wanting to evaluate themselves uh, at high valuations uh, by saying, well, because this is just a token uh, type of valuation, and just because the other tokens are valued this way, then we should be valued that same way, even if we are only uh, a few months old and we haven't done anything yet uh, that is significant. Uh, so uh, that kind of thinking uh, is, is, is risky, mm -hmm. and that kind of thinking is dangerous, uh, and that kind of thinking is what might get uh, everything to be uh, uh, frothy in the, in the environment, uh, and then what might lead us to, uh, to some kind of a pullback, uh, because at some point in time we're going to realize uh, that uh, there was a distortion of reality, and these companies are not all going to be able to deliver uh, so it's like putting the cart before the horse. The valuation does not come before the actual value that is being produced. So if we look kind of just at the Ethereum ecosystem, so Ethereum and its coin, as well as kind of all of the tokens built directly on top, the ERC20s as well as Kitties, depending on how you measure the market cap, and though, yes, as, as you pointed out, that's not a perfect measure, we're talking about in, in the billions or hundreds of billions even for total value of that ecosystem alone, and that's discounting everything that is not related to Ethereum, either Bitcoin or other chains. Would you say today in June with those hundreds of billions that we are fairly valued, overvalued, undervalued? That's a good question I keep getting. I think they, we will find uh, right now, well, what I don't like is that there's little correlation between the actual uh, underlying uh, metrics and, and, and real value drivers uh, beneath these tokens uh, or coins and, and the actual valuation that the market is giving them uh, because it is still driven by speculation. I mean, speculation, a bit of speculation is okay because it tends to fund innovation. It, it tends to give you a bit of runway in terms of... Uh, having some funds that you can use uh, to, to hire people and, and to continue to grow and, and to fund yourself. In, in, in the long term, I think we will find that the whole market is undervalued in the long term uh, today. But in, in the short term, some, some coins are definitely overvalued today. So, so it's, it, there's no real separation right now between uh, the really good coins and the ones that are, are not producing. We are still being very optimistic in terms of the uh, promises. Mm -hmm. And uh, the assumptions are that uh, all of these coins are going to deliver. And, and we're all going by what the white papers are saying. So let's, let's hit on those two points. So I've heard numbers out there where we talk about startups in general, early stage startups. And I think that's probably a fair characteristic of most, if not all, of these tokens that were early stage companies. Or maybe not companies, early stage projects. Or projects, yes. Yeah. We hear statistics that upwards of 90% fail. Do you think that that is going to be a similar thing here, that we'll see at least 90% of the tokens that exist today won't be there at some point in the future? In my opinion, the failure rates in these token projects are going to be higher than the startup failures because these many of these tokens are not setting themselves up with the right accountability 
uh, with the right mentors, uh, with the right uh, advisors, with the right support mm -hmm. that traditional startups get. The reason why the VCs invest in startups is because they give them support. The reason why investors and angel investors and uh, at any level, in any uh, part of the cycle, uh, come in into a particular company is because they are able to offer a particular kind of support uh, that is needed at that time. And for most of these token projects, uh, it's, it's very loose. Uh, the uh, uh, setup and the governance uh, ranges from uh, no governance to little governance to a little bit more, mm -hmm. and, and very few are setting themselves up properly uh, to receive the kind of guidance that they need uh, to be able to grow and, and to become more mature and to get the traction. It's not easy yeah. whether you are a project, even if it's an open source project. Some, some people will, will, will say that, uh, well, the open source projects are different than startups. Uh, I don't think so. You still have to deliver. Uh, you still have to have a community behind you. You still have to have developers that support you. You still have to have, have, to have these developers come through and, and produce some uh, applications and some, some use cases and bring their own users uh, into the ecosystem. So it, it's really about finding the right fit. And, and you cannot escape the evolutionary laws of, uh, of startups uh, with, uh, with a token. Uh, as you know, startups uh, typically will iterate uh, to find the right uh, product to market fit before they can hit it. Uh, and, and before they can really figure out what is the lever of growth, uh, what is the right set of features that they need. And, and tokens are no different. And not only do you have to figure out the product to market fit, but you also have to figure out what I call the token to market fit, yeah. <laughs> figuring out the, the role of the token. And, and because it starts as a theory mm -hmm. and uh, we, we have to, uh, to, to test it. And, and, and none of these white papers are going to survive uh, the battleground, the battle uh, field, because that, that's where the reality hits. And there, there has to be uh, adjustments and iterations and, uh, and changes, and, and these things take time. And one of the things I always wondered, and, and I, I really liked how you put the, the token market fit, I mean, we're looking at some economics 101 in here with supply and demand, and you have a lot of these tokens which claim to have a set supply at a given point in time. And, and logic would hold that if you're using this token as part of delivering your product or solution, and that product or solution is changing over time, wouldn't you also, in some cases, need to change the supply of tokens? And, and if so, if I'm an investor looking at this and I say there will be 100 million of these tokens in the future and I buy a discount based on that rate, I may not even factor that risk that they might say we need to dramatically increase or decrease that amount of token. Are people looking at that type of thing? That, that's a very good question. Uh, the unfortunate thing is there's not a lot of transparency behind uh, every token offering in terms of the distribution of the tokens uh, that uh, was decided upon by the founders. And uh, the lockup periods are not all uh, there easily to be found. I mean, they exist uh, because um, they are set sometimes in stone, sometimes not in stone uh, at the beginning. Uh, and furthermore, there's a discretion uh, at the founder level or at the foundation level in terms of how much uh, liquidity uh, gets injected into the market. And obviously, as you said, it can affect the price. Um, so right now, we're still learning about how to balance this out 
uh, and how to uh, inject more tokens into the market to maybe artificially sometimes uh, influence some uh, kind of behavior uh, or, or not, or maybe it could be to incent users, to incentivize them to uh, take particular actions. Um, but uh, the, the proof will be in, 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 in whether the, uh, the uptake is there. So uh, you, you could play with those, with those market-making types of, uh, of games uh, and, and, and be successful if the user are, users are taking them. Uh, or you could be playing a short-term short game, game uh, that will come back uh, to bite you later on uh, if the traction does not follow. Absolutely. I want to switch gears into actual usage of these tokens. And, and you and I were talking about, before we got on here, um, you'd just given a, a talk and, and mentioned websites like Dapboard, and we brought up Dapradar, and there, there's lots of other good ones in, in your blog. Um, so we'll make sure that we get the, the notes in here from your blog post. One of the things that stuck out to me was uh, CryptoKitties. Um, I, I met one of the founders there last week at an event in France, and that is, as I understand, outside of the decentralized exchanges, the biggest DAP by usage. Um, I was also very surprised that when we're recording this, the last 24 hours we had about 30 Ether go through that, or about $13,000 in volume actually flow through that. That surprised me of how big that project is, if that's 80, 90% of, of the volume outside of decentralized exchanges, that that is the biggest one, because some of these, some of these things are valued 0x, gets 30 transactions a day, or whatever it was, 300 transactions a day. They're valued in the, the hundreds of millions. How are they justifying these if we have this perfectly transparent thing that is the Ethereum blockchain, and we're valuing the tokens, market cap for all its failures, at these levels? Yes, that's, that's a good question. I mean, this ties back to what I was saying at the beginning in terms of uh, staying focused on the metrics. Uh, I, I happen to be an investor in CryptoKitties, so I am quite aware of what they are doing. And uh, there is an interesting number that they released uh, a few weeks ago at the Token Summit in New York, and that was uh, that they've uh, conducted 2.8 million uh, transactions since they, they started in the last six months. So uh, that's a big number, and that is still... Uh, the number one by by a large measure in that category, even in the gaming category and, and overall as well. And then, but yet they, there's no token. So uh, the the only ones holding the token is is the the CryptoKitty holders because that is a form of token. It's a non fungible token. It's a unique token that every owner has, every owner uh, possesses. And, uh, and now you talk about zero X. Zero X is a is a is a, it's a pretty good protocol. I mean. Uh, mind you, there is not a lot of uh, liquidity yet in the decentralized exchanges, but uh, they've been able to form a, a fairly uh, healthy ecosystem around them. If you look at the number of applications that are using the ZeroX protocol, it's not too bad. Uh, there are a number of them. You have a, a number of choice, choices uh, that you, you can uh, kind of start transacting upon. And the last one, as you know, Paradex was purchased by Coinbase. So there, there is something there, and they are evolving it. There is a 2.0 version that's coming up uh, uh, fairly soon. Uh, uh, but I would put them in the, uh, in the, in the, in the, in the good bucket. They, 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 there is traction. Whether they are valued uh, at the right number or not, that's a more difficult question to answer. Uh, but at least you can point to them, and uh, you can point at their ecosystem, you can point at the 
apps and developers uh, that are forming around them and the usage and it is there it is something that is there it is growing as well and they are releasing their own uh, stats as well uh, on their own blog so you can go and look at those and, and see that there is traction and actually I mentioned them in, in one of my last uh, blog they have had uh, more than a hundred thousand lifetime trades so that is a real real number yeah no I mean I think what I really like about those two projects that we brought up is They've been some of the most transparent projects, and, and one of the things you mentioned when you were on the stage earlier was not all of them are in that bucket, um, and some of them, looking beyond the Ethereum ecosystem as well, have been incredibly uh, opaque and have raised sometimes billions of dollars um, in, in offering this opacity to investors. And I think, as you said, the market hasn't quite figured out how to differentiate that. It's a waiting game right now. I mean, you, you can fake it for, uh, for a long time, uh, but eventually, the uh, market uh, is going to get impatient with those projects that are not delivering. And uh, I, I give it a year, uh, on average, uh, for any project, uh, for them to start to show either real user traction or some really, really good signs that are credible uh, with real uh, metrics and, uh, and, and lots of communication. Uh, not just via blogs, via email, via social channels, via community channels like uh, Reddit uh, uh, and, and others uh, being out there and, 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 and being very, very transparent and being very proactive in the communications aspects uh, is something that uh, is not practiced well enough. And uh, for all the projects that I advise, at least if I can influence them to be more uh, proactive in their communications, I always uh, uh, give them that kind of advice. Okay. One thing we've talked a lot about, and it seems like a theme in 2018, has been stablecoins. Um, you mentioned that at least a lot of the ones that are out there you haven't been a big fan of. Um, why is that? And why is the market so excited? Well, it's still an early, uh, we're still in the early phases of understanding stablecoins and how they work and how they might not work and what are the risks and the right uh, usage uh, scenarios for them. There's a lot of modeling uh, behind uh, stable coins uh, and uh, a lot of economic algorithms and theories that uh, make a lot of assumptions. Uh, but many of these assumptions are based on uh, things going right and uh, always going in the right direction and assuming that there's going to be an ongoing appreciation uh, of the underlying currency that is the, the stable currency, supposedly. Uh, but if something wrong happens, uh, then the, the whole bottom can fall out and it could, there could be some black swan types of uh, events. Uh, I mean, look at what we've heard about Tether and potentially them being responsible for artificially inflating the price of Bitcoin because they needed it to support their models. And uh, I'm not sure, I don't have any particular uh, evidence uh, or have not looked at the, at the direct uh, data to, to prove uh, whether that uh, rumor is correct or not. I did not analyze the work that the two uh, people, I think, uh, uh, I think they were in England, they, they, they did the research to, to figure this out. Uh, it was more cor correlating the timing of some of these uh, transactions uh, with the rise and or fall of, of Bitcoin. Uh, but that kind of uncertainty is not, is not good. I mean, we can, we can barely model the, the economy, and this is something we know so much about, uh, and, and trying to model any economies is very difficult. Uh, I am more of a proponent of, uh, of pegging a particular token to a, an existing stable currency that we know of. And it is usually the dollar, it is the euro, uh, it, it is uh, 
the pound, it is something that we know of that is already a lot more stable than any cryptocurrency. So I'm a proponent of, uh, of having two types of tokens now, and we're starting to see that in, in some emerging uh, uh, marketplaces. Uh, many of them are following, what's, following what Steam has done. Uh, two and a half years ago, Steam had three types of, of coins, and they were criticized at the beginning uh, for uh, people were wondering why do they have three coins? It's too complicated. But it was for that particular reason to insulate uh, the speculative aspect of uh, the external coin from the actual usage aspect inside of the marketplace. Because users do not want to see speculative prices going up and down. If I'm buying something, I want a fixed price. I want to know that the price is not going to change. Um, uh, I supported what they were doing at the time because I understood that you had to do this. And now some of the existing uh, and emerging uh, applications like uh, Kick, for example, is going to have two types of coins. As you know, they uh, have uh, announced that they will be using the Stellar blockchain and they are going to continue using the Ethereum blockchain as well. Uh, so you can read between the lines there and figure out that uh, they, there might be a case of uh, using two tokens where one is stable and the other one is uh, more speculative and there will be some linkage at some point in time uh, of, of a nature that they will decide. Uh, and that's, I, I think, is, is, a, is a more healthy environment for, for being able to grow blockchain economies uh, where the token is an intrinsic part of the uh, transactional nature uh, and of the value creation nature where there is buying and selling or there is uh, creation and consumption when where there, there is a, an actual value uh, being rewarded uh, for, for the work that's being done. And I think that's a really interesting point and a lot of people have, have intrinsically gone into the notion of usage of this particular token should drive up the value for the existing holders which creates community, but you're advocating for going back to almost the traditional structure of saying, I want something that represents just the price of buying these tickets, and that can be fixed or that can be floating, but something different from the holding and the ownership. So this is looks somewhat, uh, we could argue, like a traditional ownership structure. Uh, you're, you've got your debt, you've got your equity on one side of the balance sheet, and then you have your actual buying uh, business activity happening. And that's that's very different from a lot of these. Yeah, I mean, I would characterize it as something in between. It is not totally traditional. I mean, the novelty here is that there, there are two coins. I, again, I keep using the analogy of uh, we, we don't go and buy an iPhone with Apple stock. Uh, you buy it with dollars or pounds or euros and so on. And the relationship between the pound and the dollar and Apple stock is kind of indirect. Right. It, it, it is, if you bought it with your dollars, mm -hmm. then, uh, you, then you're committed. So uh, something of that nature, but where there, there is a linkage there for the particular uh, application. And that linkage can be controlled a little bit more carefully and in, in a knowing environment. And, and I'm a proponent of being able to walk before we can run. So think of this as a way to train ourselves to better understand the relationships between a particular operation of a um, blockchain-based economy, token-based economy, with the actual uh, speculative nature and the, uh, uh, what, what, the, what the investors want to put as a price uh, on, on that activity. Okay. So last question I have for you. What do you think are the milestones that are coming up in the next 6 to 12 months that you're going to say, 
right track, wrong track, and kind of what are some of the themes that you're looking at right now? Not necessarily project names, but what are the themes that you say, this is a standout area that I would like to see emerge or succeed? So one of them is obviously the area of compliance and regulation. There is still a lot of uncertainty in what regulators are going to do or are doing especially in the Western world, when you look at the SEC, the FCA, uh, the OSC in Canada, and to some extent the FINMA in Switzerland, uh, these are the big ones that are driving, uh, potentially, arguably speaking, uh, what others are looking, uh, they're looking at them as, as uh, leading to what others may follow. So some of them have been more clear than others, uh, but I think there's still a cloud that is hanging over what they might be doing in the future. Uh, especially, I am uh, alarmed that they are tending to uh, classify everything as a security. Uh, and they, they are forcing a lot of these projects to go the private placement offering route, uh, where, uh, in my opinion, more scams and more abuses will likely happen uh, than otherwise. Uh, just because you have disclosed uh, and you have filed uh, your token offering and follow the securities rules, it doesn't mean that you have a very solid project. Uh, and I'm seeing some very uh, crazy valuations and uh, big amounts being raised there uh, with uh, little accountability. Uh, and, and there will be some, some bad ones that will emerge. Uh, I would have liked to see some more uh, specific rules put in place uh, by the regulators on ICOs where everybody knows uh, what they have to do and what they cannot do. Uh, not just in the securities uh, framework, uh, but I'd like to see more innovation around the util utility type of framework. Uh, we know very well what a security is, but we don't know very well what a utility is. It is still very cloudy. Let us define that. Why can we not define it and, and give it some parameters and, and give it uh, some requirements um, uh, to make it as easy uh, as uh, we, it is today for securities? The second uh, point is, is looking at uh, metrics. Uh, again, I've said this before, I, I am going to look for, for metrics uh, beyond just uh, daily active users, uh, smart contract related, uh, uh, unique addresses, wallets, uh, API calls, if it's a development environment, transactions per seconds, if that's important, uh, uh, value of transactions, uh, value created. Uh, value of, uh, of the goods uh, that, that are being uh, transacted upon. Uh, so really going deeper into the actual operation of, of these uh, blockchain applications and blockchain projects and, and going back to what they promised us in the white papers and, 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 uh, and asking them to, to, to show now what uh, they promised uh, they were going to deliver. Uh, so these are two aspects. The third aspect is looking at the business-to-business -business, uh, area of blockchain applications uh, because, as you know, enterprises uh, have been doing, uh, making a lot of hand-waving hand uh, in, the, in the enterprise space. But I knew uh, well uh, from the beginning that uh, we were not to expect uh, big changes uh, because big companies, as you know, do not like to uh, make change happen so quickly and they cannot uh, disrupt themselves. They talk about innovation, but with a small I, not with a big a capital I. Not the same innovation that startups want to talk about. So for them, innovation is improving a process or uh, reducing the time to, uh, to conduct a transaction uh, or, or saving a little bit, a bit, a bit of money here and there. Uh, so for them, that is innovation. But for them to enter new business uh, 
uh, models, that will be very difficult. Uh, but I do look and expect uh, these uh, uh, enterprises to start to show some, some fruit of the pilots that they've been conducting for the last year. And, and it's time now to, to show uh, what the blockchain can do in the enterprise as well. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thanks for coming on the show. And big thank you to the amazing production team here at 11FS, our producers, Petrit Barisha and Laura Watkins, and Holly Blacksill, our editor. Thanks for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye.